Okay, so the reading tonight is from Mark chapter 14, commencing at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may, that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house. The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat and the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out, entered the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to, to him one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take this, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? 
Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I was a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the work servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree upon this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, Prophesy! The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, 
Then he went out to the entryway, and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she begins to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them, since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Before the rooster has crowed twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. friends, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to speak to you from God's word this evening. Whether it's your first time to church uh, or your 100th time, uh, whether you're here in person or joining us via the live stream, I extend a warm welcome to each and every one of you. Uh, Over the past few months, uh, we've been journeying through Mark's account of Jesus's life and asking a key question that Mark invites us to consider. Who is Jesus? Mark's purpose in writing this gospel, this account of Jesus' life, is to answer this question. Mark's aim is that we would consider this question carefully and see Jesus clearly for ourselves. Well, Mark begins his gospel by telling us exactly who Jesus is. Mark's opening verse reads, the beginning of the gospel or good news of Jesus Christ, God's chosen king, the son of God. Everything that comes afterwards, all 657 verses, yes, I did stop and count all of them, all of the verses that come afterwards show us what it means for Jesus to be God's chosen king. But what we've seen in our series so far is that the Jesus we expect is not the Jesus that we get. When it comes to Jesus, we need to expect the unexpected. Mark also begins his gospel by giving us a summary of Jesus' teaching. We read, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, which means turn around, and believe, or trust, the good news. Our passage today resolves the tension that has been slowly building throughout Mark's gospel. How is Jesus going to bring about the kingdom that he has promised, the kingdom over which he is the king. And the simple definition of kingdom to get us started is this idea. The kingdom of God is God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. How is Jesus going to bring this kingdom about? In Mark 14, we're going to walk with Jesus across three key scenes as Mark slowly and yet dramatically reveals 
who Jesus is. These scenes will in turn show us what Jesus came to do, why Jesus came to do it, and how he ultimately accomplishes God's purposes. So firstly, we're going to see Jesus eating a meal with his disciples, which shows us what he came to do. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus in a garden, tempted and under real pressure, and see his response, which will show us why he came to do it. And thirdly, we're going to see Jesus on trial for his life, which will show us how Jesus accomplishes God's purposes. So I've grouped it into three headings, the meal, the garden, and the trial. What, why, how? We'll be covering a lot of ground in this chapter, uh, as you've probably noticed, Uh, and so we won't have time to cover everything. Uh, There will be a short time of Q&A after the talk, uh, so please feel free to write down any questions uh, that you might have relating to anything I've said or haven't had the time to say, and I'll do my best to answer them. But before we dive into this passage, uh, I'm going to pray for God's help. So would you please join me in prayer? Blessed Lord and Father, as we come to the climax of Mark's gospel, I pray that by your spirit, you would point us all clearly to your son. Quieten our hearts and minds and illuminate your word that we might hear it clearly, receive it joyfully and respond to it wisely for your glory and for our good. Amen. So scene number one, the meal. This will show us what Jesus came to do. As our passage begins, we see Jesus in Jerusalem preparing to celebrate the Passover. This is a yearly meal charged with symbolism that Jesus, as a faithful Jew, would have grown up eating every year. Every year, Jews were to share this meal together in small household groups to mark their rescue from slavery and the creation of the Jewish nation God's Old Testament people. So about 1,500 years before Jesus, God had rescued the 12 tribes of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and through a series of miracles and a mighty deliverance, he brought them out of that land through his servant Moses. It is an incredible story, and you can read about it in the Old Testament book of Exodus, or you can watch the DreamWorks animated classic, The Prince of Egypt. I highly recommend... Highly recommend doing both. Uh, Feel free to sing along to the Prince of Egypt in your own time. But this meal marks that miracle. In the events of the Exodus, God, through Moses, brings his people up out of Egypt and promises to take them to a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a picture of the good life. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. But almost immediately, there's a problem. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. You can take the people out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the people. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Egypt becomes a shorthand for misplaced trust and misplaced confidence. And as the narrative unfolds, God's people keep looking to a metaphorical Egypt rather than God for their safety and their security. And this is the reality of hope. 
our hope is only as strong as what we hang it on. Egypt represents false hope, safety and security that is deceptive and ultimately disappointing. But this isn't just a back then problem. You and I suffer from the same problem. How often have you and I placed our confidence, our trust in people, in things, in situations, in circumstances, in ideas that have ultimately let us down? Hundreds of years after that first Passover, Jesus uses the Passover of his day to point to this great need, this great problem that we all need to be rescued from. God's Old Testament people needed to be rescued from physical slavery. That was their greatest need. And yet during this Passover, Jesus points to a greater, a deeper, a more dangerous slavery that all of humanity needs to be rescued from. The metaphorical Egypt of misplaced trust and confidence. And Jesus points to himself, the new Moses, God's chosen servant, God's agent of rescue, through whom God would bring about a new and greater exodus. We need a rescuer. We need a saviour. We cannot rescue ourselves from misplaced trust. And so, beloved, here is our saviour, Jesus Christ, the new Moses. How are we to respond to this? Well, let's look at what Jesus says and does. In verse 22, we read, As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it. He gave it to them and said, Take it and eat. This is my body. How are we to respond to Jesus, the new Moses? Well, we are to feed on him. This sounds like a strange thing to do, but hear me out. In the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the four biographies that we have recorded for us in the Christian New Testament, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's only one of Jesus' miracles that's recorded across all four. The one miracle that's repeated across all four Gospels is a miraculous feeding of 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. In these miracles, recorded and repeated for us in the Gospels, Jesus provides bread and people eat until they are satisfied. As he dines with his disciples, what does Jesus offer them? Bread. Jesus offers his disciples bread, himself as bread. After the events of the Exodus, God, through Moses, led his people through the wilderness into a promised land. On that journey, God provided bread for his people and nourished them day by day. He nourished them, he fed them with bread from heaven. And they ate and they were satisfied. And in the Gospels, we have Jesus, again, providing bread for the people of God and ultimately pointing to himself and offering up himself as the true bread of heaven, our spiritual food. What had happened in the past with Israel, with Moses, with the Exodus, was only a shadow of what was to come. And that shadow pointed to this reality 
which is now here in Jesus. Throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus is like Moses in several different ways. Jesus teaches. Jesus speaks prophecies. Jesus feeds people. These are all things that Moses did in the Old Testament. And yet here, we see Jesus not just as the new Moses, but the greater Moses. Jesus not only promises to lead us into a new and greater promised land, he also promises to nourish us along the way. The Exodus narrative is actually a picture of the Christian life. We are brought up out of Egypt, we are called to hang our hope on God, and we are invited to feed upon Jesus as we journey to a new and greater promised land. So who is Jesus? He is the new and greater Moses. What did he come to do? Well, he came to rescue us, to save us from misplaced trust and misplaced confidence, to call us to place our trust and our confidence in him. Beloved, Jesus is the new and greater Moses who leads a new and greater exodus. He offers himself to us as our bread from heaven and calls on us to feed on him in our hearts by faith, trusting him. And he promises to sustain and satisfy us as we journey with him to a new and greater promised land. Feed on him as you follow him. Feed on him as you follow him. In our second scene, we enter the garden. This shows us why Jesus had to do what he came to do. As our passage continues, we see Jesus journeying with his disciples into a garden, a garden called Gethsemane, located just across from the ancient city of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a picture of it behind me. Uh, it's still around. You can go and visit it. Gethsemane was an olive grove located on a hill, the very appropriately named Mount of Olives, a place where olives were grown and pressed in order to make olive oil. In the ancient world, olive oil was used as a medicine to treat wounds. And so here, in an olive garden, you have Jesus himself feeling pressed as he prepares to become the medicine to heal a far deeper wound. Picking up from verses 33 and 34. Jesus began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. What is going on here? To grasp the gravity of this statement, we need to slow down and look at two clues that the passage gives us. The first clue to what is going on here is to look at the setting, a garden. Now this takes us right back to the beginning of the Christian story. See, the Bible tells us that at the dawn of creation, humanity was created for good, placed by God in a garden, a place of safety, of security, and of provision, where their needs were met, where they were protected, where they were satisfied, and where they lived in perfect peace and harmony with God, with one another, and with the wider creation at large. Perfect peace and harmony. This was God's ideal. Humanity was made by love and for love in order to know and be known by God 
and to be caretakers of his good world, gardeners and governors of the entire created order. And yet, in the tragedy of tragedies, humanity became damaged by evil and were cast out from God's presence, from the safety and the security of the garden into the wilderness of the world. And so it's almost as if the rest of the Bible is an answer to one simple question. How do we get humanity back into the garden? Countless generations later, here is Jesus and here is the answer. Jesus, who begins his earthly ministry in a wilderness, the deserts of northern Israel, a physical wilderness, and yet also a spiritual wilderness, the wilderness of a world in which evil, death, and decay reign supreme. And here is Jesus, who faces his final test, his final trial, in a garden. Here is the renewal of the garden story. Here is the answer to how we get mankind back into the garden, that we might be restored for better. The second clue as to what's going on here is to look at the object of Jesus' anguish. What is he so anxious about? A cup. Picking up the text in verse 35, 36, sorry. Jesus says, Abba, which means dear father, Abba, father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about here? Across the Old Testament, a cup is often used as a symbol of God's judgment, his right and just opposition to all that corrupts his good world and stands against his good designs. Evil, injustice, death, and decay. Now, judgment is a word that we are unsettled by, especially when it's spoken of in terms of God's judgment. But consider this. As the font of all that is good and beautiful and lovely and true and right, God would not be good, let alone God, if he did not deal with evil, injustice, death, and decay. So there is a sense in which it is entirely right for us to be unsettled by God's justice. According to the Christian story, as I mentioned before, humanity has become damaged by evil. This means that we're a mix of the divine and the diabolical, capable of great good on one hand and great evil on the other. Evil and injustice, according to the Bible, are not just abstract concepts out there. According to Jesus, evil, injustice, sin, death, decay, they flow from in here, from the human heart, because the fault lines of good and evil are not out there. They're in here. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So back to the cup, a symbol of God's wrath, his entirely justified anger against all that stands against goodness, love, truth, beauty, 
Each and every one of us deserves to relate to God as our judge. We love the wrong things too much and the right things too little. We fail to live up to the sacred charge that is the duty of every human being, to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so here is a cup, a cup that each of us deserves to drink from, the cup of God's judgment. And yet, and yet, just as we are all children of the first Adam and followed the first Adam into disobedience, dis- disobedience and disordered love, here we have Jesus, the second Adam, the true and better Adam, who obeyed where Adam disobeyed, who obeyed even as we disobey. Whereas we, with the first Adam, say to God, my will be done, here we have the true and better Adam who says to God, thy will be done, not what I will, but what you will. Here is the true and better Adam as the representative of all of humanity being prepared to drink all of our cups dry. No wonder he's deeply distressed and horrified, and so he staggers. And yet, Jesus is prepared to give himself by his own hand and walk willingly into the deepest of darknesses, that of God's judgment, and all for love. Beloved, consider the cost For us to relate to God as our Father, His only Son, His one and true Son, had to relate to God as His judge. For us to relate to God as our Father, the only one who had the right to relate to God as Father, had to relate to Him as His judge. At the heart of sin, what the Christian Bible calls sin, misordered love, is us putting ourselves in the place of God. And yet, according to the same Bible, at the heart of salvation is God putting himself in our place and bearing our judgment. And so how are we to respond to this? Well, we cannot follow Jesus in his perfection. We can only watch as he fights and he wins our unwinnable battle. We cannot follow him in his perfection, but we can feed on him and so be in him and belong to him. Beloved, Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is our representative who stands in obedience where we fall in disobedience, as well as our substitute who was willing to drink from the cup of God's curse and drink it dry, that we might drink from the cup of God's blessing that will never run dry. So be in him and belong to him. Our third and final scene, the trial. This will show us how Jesus accomplishes God's purposes. After he is betrayed, abandoned, and arrested, Jesus is put on trial. Or rather, he's forced to endure the horrors of a mistrial, slandered, mocked, beaten, and scorned. Yet amidst the shame and the humiliation 
of this mistrial, we see Mark's clear answer to the question, who is Jesus? Picking up from verse 61, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? The high priest puts Jesus under oath, much like we put witnesses under oath today, meaning that Jesus has to answer this question. Who are you? Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? At this point, we can imagine a silence falling over everyone in the room. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the temple police, the false witnesses, the Jewish ruling council. What is Jesus going to say to the question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus says two words which change the course of human history. He says, ego ami, I am. Now to understand the gravity of what Jesus has just said and the response that follows, which is nothing short of all hell breaking loose, we need to backtrack a little bit. Jesus has just been asked whether he's the Messiah or Christ, God's chosen king and whether he's the son of God. Jesus doesn't simply say yes. He says, I am. In the Old Testament, God introduces himself to his people by a particular name. I am who I am, or I am for short. Out of reverence for God, no Jew, no faithful Jew ever used God's name in conversation. So not only is Jesus using the personal name of God, which no Jewish person ever did, he's applying the name of God to himself. Yet Jesus goes even further. In verse 62, we read, And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, that is God, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, this needs more unpacking for us to actually grasp the magnitude of what's going on here. Jesus is bringing together several Old Testament promises and prophecies and applying them to himself. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite self-referential title. On one level, it means human being. Yet that's not how Jesus uses it here or has been using it all the way through Mark's gospel. Jesus is identifying himself with the Son of Man, promised in the Old Testament book of Daniel. One like a Son of Man who approaches God and is given authority to rule and glory and an everlasting kingdom. Here we have a human being approaching God and being given all that is rightfully God's. Authority to rule glory, the service of all mankind, and a kingdom that will never perish. Jesus is claiming to be that being. But Jesus goes even further, seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds. In this context, the power is God. In the ancient world, to sit at the right hand of a king 
was to be given the ultimate position of honour and status. To sit at the right hand of God. Well, that's the most important position ever, period, bar none. A position of ultimate authority, honour, power and status. In the Psalms, the great songbook of the Old Testament, ancient Israel's greatest king, King David, speaks of one of his descendants who would be greater than he and sit at the right hand of God. Now, in the ancient world, an ancestor is always greater than a descendant. David was a Christ. He was a chosen king. Here we have the Christ, Jesus, the chosen king, descended from David and claiming to be great David's greater son who sits at God's right hand, God's chosen king, and yet more, God's chosen king who will come to judge the living and the dead. So let's put all of this together. Jesus is here claiming to be God's chosen king and God himself, the son of man who will rule and reign unchallenged forever, equal with God and yet distinct from God, the judge of all mankind. He is in effect saying to those who are standing in judgment of him at that moment that he will one day stand in judgment over them as their God. No wonder the high priest tears his robes in horror and distress and cries out, blasphemy. And he's ready to put Jesus to death. In fact, it is blasphemy, unless Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. Unless Jesus is who he says he is. And Jesus stands ready and willing to be put to death, to be the sacrificial lamb who would drink God's judgment dry, who would suffer and who would die, so that we could drink from the cup of God's blessing, which would never run dry. Beloved, this is what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. Not to come in power and might to bring about God's just judgment upon the world, which he had every right to do, but rather to come in lowliness and weakness to bear God's just judgment for the world, to be how the world would be reconciled and restored to God. Here we have great David's greater son who came not to be served, but to serve, and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Well, how are we to respond? Well, as we feed on him, we are to crown him, to let him reign upon the throne of our hearts, our minds, and our lives, and to live with him as our rightful king. We are to trust that this Jesus, high and mighty, who became gentle and lowly, loved us to the bitter end and beyond. We are to call on him as our king, trusting that he will never leave us or forsake us, 
and that he will carry us safely to the shores of eternity and into the kingdom of God, where we will live as God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing, the good life, forever. Jesus is great David's greater son, the once and future king who will inherit all of the nations of the earth. He is God's chosen king who will judge all the kingdoms of the world. This means that there's no refuge from him, only in him. So we must crown him and call on him. Bringing everything together, Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Feed on him and follow him. Jesus is the new and greater Adam. Be in him and belong to him. Jesus is the new and greater David. Crown him and call on him. Prayer is going to come up on the screen shortly. Uh, This prayer is a poem, part of a poem that was written uh, anonymously in the 12th century. And I thought it could be a great prayer on which uh, to end. It is certainly my prayer, and I hope that you'll make it yours as well. So please pray with me as I close. What language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow your mercy without end. Lord, make me yours forever, a loyal servant true, and let me never, never outlive my love for you. And as we do so, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.